Colossians chapter 1. There is no greater news that could be given to mankind than what was told to the women on that morning in Jerusalem. There's nothing that surpasses it. There's nothing that brings greater joy than to know that Jesus is not in the tomb anymore. Jesus is risen. He's defeated death. He's defeated the grave. He's overcome all of it. And this has been the most debated news in history. Jesus has not pulled off some elaborate illusion. His physical death was witnessed by hundreds of people. It was confirmed when the Roman soldier stuck the spear into his side and confirmed that his heart has stopped. The Jewish leaders weren't um, complicit in some conspiracy to keep him alive. We know that because they hated him. They were the ones that had wanted him put to death, that had told the Romans, you need to crucify him, branding him a criminal, branding him a blasphemer, which wasn't true, but that was how they trumped up the charges to get him on the cross. And then we know that the disciples hadn't stolen the body because the Romans were notorious for the thoroughness, and they had put a seal on the tomb. They had put two Roman soldiers, and Roman soldiers didn't mess around. They were the the top, the elite ones. And knowing the controversy around Jesus, the Romans put their best soldiers there. So there's no way the disciples could have gotten in. The account of all of this can't just be dismissed as a story, something we made up. Historians outside of the Bible confirm that Jesus lived, Jesus was murdered, and Jesus died and was put in a grave. And then something unexplainable happened, something that science can't debate because there's no way for them to debate it. The body disappeared. Jesus was no longer in the tomb, and no one has ever been able to find the body. In fact, all of the evidence points to the reality that what the angels told the women and what is recorded by four different disciples is the best and the only explanation of what actually happened, that Jesus rose from the dead. It's the only thing that can be explained. It's the only way there's any logic to it. Now, the implications of that are literally eternal. If Jesus is alive, and he is, if he's defeated sin and death in the grave, and he did, it means that his purpose for coming here was fulfilled. And that it means that he was God in flesh, that he did come to take away the sin of the world, that he did go to the cross as the perfect sacrificial lamb, that he did put sin to death, he did put Uh, sin under his thumb and defeated it forever. All of that has to be true. And the fact that he is alive means that we can have complete victory over sin because he has complete victory over sin. And his statement that anyone who trusts in him will be saved has to be true. Now people can debate that and dismiss that and deny that all they want, but the fact is All the facts line up. And people can say, well, I don't need a Savior. I'm good enough. It's fine. I'm, I'm doing well. Well, if you weren't here Friday night, you need to listen to that study because that eradicates all thought that we have that we can save ourselves. But, but let's go with it. 
We need to be saved. Why? Because of our sin. Sin controls us. It blinds us. It curses us. It keeps us in bondage. And it strips all spiritual life from us. It is a helpless, hopeless position from which we have no way to escape. And the penalty for it, the penalty and the price for our sin, the cost of it, is eternal death. Now let's get one thing perfectly straight this morning. The Lord absolutely would have been justified to leave us under that death sentence. He would have been perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly right to do that. He owed us nothing. And yet, because of the depth of his love and because of the depth of his mercy, Jesus came to free us. Jesus came to deliver us. And we can deny that we don't need him. But as we asked Friday night, if sin doesn't matter and we can save ourselves, then why did Jesus come here? Why did he get betrayed and mocked and beaten and arrested and whipped and flogged and and spit on and go to the cross with the penalty of sin on himself and die an unthinkable death? Why did he do that if we don't need his salvation? It would have just been a joke. It would have just been him play-acting some part that he didn't need to play. The only explanation, the only reason Jesus went to the cross is that sin fully infects us and curses us, and we need Jesus as a Savior. Now, at the Good Friday service, we established that there are five problems. Five problems that sin creates which absolutely prevent us from saving ourselves and put us in opposition to God. And this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus defeats and eradicates each of those problems. He doesn't just take care of them. He completely and utterly annihilates them. So the problem of sin, the problem that sin creates in our life, and I'll recap it as we go through, but but the problems that sin puts on us, by rising from the grave, Jesus defeated all of those. At the cross, he took the penalty. He took the pain. He took the curse of our sin on himself, and he crucified them. And the power and control that sin once had over us was put to death. When he rose from the grave, the penalty and curse was defeated forever. So anyone who trusts in him, please hear this if you're nothing else this morning, anyone who trusts in Jesus as Savior experiences salvation. And all of the promises that Jesus made are then fulfilled. Whosoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As many as receive him, to them he gave the power, tell me church, to become the sons of God. These are not pipe dreams. These are promises. If you trust in me, I will save you. I will give you everlasting life. I am faithful and just to cleanse you from all our sin. When God looks at Paul Rhodes' life, I don't understand why, but he sees no record of sin. I've said it the last couple weeks. I've committed tens and tens and tens of thousands of sins. I'm not bragging about that. It's embarrassing and shameful. But when God looks at the record, because of Jesus, when he looks at the book of Paul Rhodes' life, 
It's white page after white page after white page after white page. There's no more record. Because he says, I've thrown your sins as far as the east is from west. I don't remember them anymore. That's not because I go to church or I'm a pastor or because I'm a good dad or because I read my Bible. It's all because of Jesus. So this morning is a day of victory, right? The Lord is risen. A little slow on the take, but that's all right. This morning, let's see how he defeated sin. Let's see how his resurrection takes away the problems and offers us victory and forgiveness. Turn your Bible, Colossians chapter 1. The writer of this text is a man named Paul. We studied Paul on Friday night. And the writer of this text, Paul, knew Jesus was alive. Now, he had never met Jesus before Jesus died and rose again. Paul and Jesus never personally interacted up until Acts 20, uh, until the book of Acts, Acts 10. Paul hated people that knew Jesus. Paul hated people that loved Jesus before Acts 10. In fact, he hated them so much, he hated the concept of Jesus, he hated the fact that people talked about him, that he had resurrected, he, he, he despised that so much that prior to Acts 10, he started killing people. He started going around as one of the higher religious leaders in Israel, and he started executing people because they claimed the name of Jesus. He wanted to eradicate their influence. He wanted to get rid of anybody that talked about Jesus, or anybody that said, Jesus is alive. He wanted them all to be gone. And as Paul is heading to his next stop to go murder more people because they're Christians, which is what we're seeing throughout the Middle East this morning, watch the news. I read an article yesterday that said, the birthplace of Christianity, there aren't going to be any more Christians. So that's what Paul was doing. I'm going to go kill everybody that names the name of Jesus. But as Paul's walking to the next place, Jesus appears to him. Jesus has already gone back to heaven. And he confronts him. He says, why are you killing people that love me? And he calls Paul to repent of his sin and to trust in him. And Paul not only does that, but he becomes the leading evangelist in the New Testament. So if Jesus hadn't risen from the grave, there's no way whatsoever that Paul would have ever admitted to trusting Jesus let alone tell others about him, let alone write 14 different letters to other Christians teaching them about Jesus, including the one that's in our hands, the one to the church in Colossae. Paul's words here, and this is what we do in our lives, Paul's words here are an affirmation of the power of the resurrection. And then he explains to these young believers in Colossae, what the resurrection has done. We're just going to look at four verses this morning. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Go to verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
here is what Paul is telling us. The one who hated Jesus, the one who persecuted Jesus' followers, the one who breathed out threats against anybody that said Jesus is alive. Here is the same man now saying, let me tell you what Jesus does for you. Let me tell you how Jesus changes your life. Let me tell you how the resurrection, oh, the resurrection's true. I can verify it because my life has been changed. Let me tell you what that has done for us and how it deals with the problem of sin. Okay? So we're going to establish quickly five things that Jesus' resurrection has done to defeat sin. Here's the first problem that sin creates. Sin blinds the heart of man. But I want you to notice in verses 12 and 13 that through Jesus, we have been transferred from darkness to light. Paul initially heard that concept when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus in Acts 26. And Jesus tells Paul, I'm now sending you, now that you get it, I'm now sending you to open the eyes of other people so they'll turn from darkness to light. Then Paul got a very visceral understanding of that because Jesus physically blinded him. And Paul has to be led to the next town. And his faith is growing at this point. He's realizing what God has done and that Jesus is alive and that the resurrection is real. And all those people he killed saying the name of Jesus, they were all right and he was wrong. And now his life has changed and he gets to the next town and God opens up his eyes and he says, now do you get it? Now do you get that sin blinds you and now the eyes are open? Now you understand the gospel. Now you understand salvation. Now go tell other people. Jesus says in John 12, I came as the light of the world, so everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That tells us that there are only two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of the devil, who is the chief sinner, who blinds the hearts of mankind and keeps people in the dark about God's love and God's mercy and lies and tells everybody you're far better off living for yourself than you are living for God. There's that kingdom. And then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is marked by God's awesome love and his amazing grace. And he proved that love and grace by sending Jesus to take our place. And sending Jesus to kill our sin. And sending Jesus to defeat the kingdom of darkness. And sending Jesus to save us completely. And when we're saved completely, somebody say amen after this. We're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's what Jesus did. There's no middle ground. There is the kingdom of the devil. And there is the kingdom of God. There are no other kingdoms. And we fool ourselves if we think there's a third kingdom where I'm king. That's the deception of the enemy. So you and I have to decide where we're going to live. And we have to seriously analyze whether there's been an actual transfer, whether it is indisputable as we look at our lives and you know your heart only. I don't know your heart. You know your heart. I know my heart. We have to analyze, is there indisputable evidence? Am I completely confident that I am living in the kingdom of light? See, we saw the imagery of sin and darkness in the crucifixion, that Jesus was arrested in the night and tried in the night, and when he died, that the earth was filled with darkness, and he was placed in the dark tomb. But everything about the resurrection is filled with light. 
He rose as the light of day filled the sky, and the tomb was filled with light, and it was opened up so light could come in and penetrate it. And the angels who announced his resurrection to the women, they were clothed in light. All of it symbolizes that man no longer has to be in darkness because Jesus has come to transfer ownership of our lives. Jesus has come to move us from darkness to light, from blindness to clarity. So he solved problem one. Problem two is that sin had put every person under bondage. But through Jesus, we have been rescued and freed. Look back at verse 13, because Paul uses a very interesting word. He says, we have been rescued. The resurrection of Christ has freed us now from the kingdom of darkness. Paul described man's situation in another book he wrote, Romans, where he says that because before Jesus, we were all slaves to sin. But now we can be slaves to righteousness. See, sin used to be our master. Before I got saved, sin was my master. You say, well, Paul, you got saved at nine. Like, how much was sin a master of your life? Doesn't matter because we're all infected and cursed by sin. Doesn't matter if you got saved at five or you got saved at 55. We all are sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. So sin controlled me and it held me. Better understand this. I tell you what, everybody close your eyes for a minute. Everybody close your eyes. Now I want you to get a real clear picture in your mind, okay? We've watched enough movies and videos to know this picture. Real clear picture in your mind. Picture yourselves in a very dark dungeon. In a castle that is very secure. And you are held by multiple sets of heavy, unbreakable chains. I mean, big old, thick chains like they'd use to tie up a ship. Those are all around your arms and legs and your torso and your neck. You can't get loose. You're in that dark, awful, uh, nasty dungeon. And, and, and your jailer... The one who's guarding you, he's torturing you, and he's mocking you. He's a sadistic killer, and he keeps reminding you that you have no way of escape. You cannot get out of those chains or free yourself by any method. Keep your eyes closed. Get the picture now. Every day, you fall deeper into darkness. Every day, you fall deeper into depression. Every day, you become more malnourished. Every day you lose a little bit more hope to the point that your condition becomes so familiar that you almost start to just accept it. And you start to develop kind of a, a Stockholm Syndrome kind of mindset. Maybe, maybe this guy's not so bad. Maybe he could torture me worse. Maybe I'll just learn to live with it. It's really just not that bad a way to live. You got it? You got the picture in your mind now? That's a tiny picture of what it is to live in sin. It's absolute bondage. There's no way to escape. And the more we accept it as the way to live, the more disaffected we become about that bondage. Now open your eyes. Jesus came to free you from those chains. Jesus came to free you from that position. He came to pull you and me out of the darkness, away from the one who wants to kill our soul. And he shows us, you don't have to accept that kind of life because I will give you light and freedom.
Sin puts us in bondage. Sin depresses us. Sin blinds us. Sin controls us. But Jesus says, no, you're not going to stay that way. I love you too much. I care about you too much, so I'm going to free you. And there was a third problem with sin. The third problem with sin was that it had put a curse and a death sentence on each of us. But look what the text says. It says, through Jesus, we are now reconciled and declared holy. See, back in Romans, Paul finished this thought, and he said, because of Jesus, we go from slaves to sin. You have the picture? I hope you don't ever forget that. Picturing yourself in that dungeon. That, that, we were slaves to sin. We were under bondage. There was no way out. But he says, now Jesus has resurrected, and now we're slaves to righteousness. And if you look at the text here in Colossians, it says the result of that is sanctification, which is holiness, and eternal life. In other words, not only does Jesus free us, but he takes away all of the sin and he replaces it with holiness, which not only changes our eternal future, but it changes our relationship with him and it changes our heart and our mind and our perspective and our attitude and our confidence and our purpose for living while we're still here. Sin no longer controls us. Look at verse 21 We used to be alienated. We used to be hostile. We used to be full of evil works. But now Jesus has reconciled us. He's brought us back into a right relationship with him. And he presents us, get this, because this blows my mind. He presents us as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. Now I'll tell you right now, you may not know me from anybody else. That's fine. I am not holy, I am not blameless, and I am far beyond reproach as a human being. I got all kinds of reproach. I don't even really know what reproach means, but I got a lot of it. I'm guilty. My life is a shame. My life was full of sin. It engulfed me. It captivated me. It controlled me. Everything about me was sin. But now Jesus says, oh, I'm going to save you, and I'm not just going to save you. I'm going to save you, and I'm going to put into your life that you're now holy, and you're blameless. And when I look at the record, there's nothing. You're beyond reproach. Everything is clean, and it's because of me. Now think back to that dungeon for a moment. The reason we were there is because we were convicted war criminals. We had committed treason against God. We were full of hatred and disloyalty and rebellion. And Jesus says, I will not only free you, but I will forget that. I will erase the record of your offenses. I will fully restore you to relationship with me. And now you want to be overwhelmed. Look at verse 12. He says, I'll make you an inheritor of my kingdom. Anybody want to say praise the Lord to that one? I deserve death. I deserve to be in those chains forever and then to be executed. But Jesus says, I'm going to free you. And I'm not just going to say, well done, go on, have a nice life. I'm going to change you completely, and I'm going to erase any record, and I'm going to restore you, and then you're now going to inherit my kingdom. See, that was problem number four with sin. 
Sin eliminates all life and all growth. But through Jesus, we have new life and constant growth. Jesus told us, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it. Do you know the last word? Tell me. Abundantly. I've come because the world is lost. I've come because everyone's infected by sin. I've come because the whole Old Testament has proven you can't save yourselves. In fact, at the first opportunity, you run farther away from me, farther away from my love, and rebel against me and do your own, do your own thing. So for 39 books, I've proved that. Now, I've come, and I've come to give you life and to give you life abundantly. Listen, when you are saved... We shouldn't look like the plants that, uh, that, that get around me. I, I give off, I think, bad carbon dioxide or something. When you put plants, in fact, I'm a little nervous about these plants up here this morning. I hope they make it through the service. Because when plants are around me, I die. Every office I've ever had, I get a nice little palm tree. I'm like, hey, look, a palm tree. I'm in Florida. I'm not, though. And within about two weeks, and I water it, put it in the sun, I do everything you're supposed to do. And the plant just kind of withers and gets brown. That's not what our spiritual life is supposed to look like. I have come to give you life and give you abundant life. But how many of us have gotten saved? But our life looks like that. How many of us say, well, I trusted Jesus when I was 13. I prayed at a camp. But, but there's little evidence of new growth. And, and actually, the life looks a little bit withered and dry. And, and there's no fruit. It's not flourishing in any way. That is not the abundant life that Jesus promised. And if our lives are not abundant, it's not because he's inadequate or hasn't kept his promise. It's because sin is still around and it's wrestling for control that we're giving it. My life, I've been saved 41, 42 this summer. 42 years I've known Jesus Christ. I've trusted him. My life better look like an abundant flowering tree with all kinds of fruit. Because if it's not, I have zero excuse. It's not because Jesus' life isn't abundant. His resurrection was the most powerful moment in human history. It was an eternal transaction of sin being defeated, the devil losing all control, Saul's changing from death to life, and life becoming abundant and growth flourishing. So if you and I have trusted the one who defeated sin and defeated the grave, and he's transferred us from life, uh, darkness to light, and he's given us his spirit and his uh, uh, life that is abundant into our lives, it should be obvious. In every single aspect of our lives, it should be obvious. And if it's not... Sin needs to be eradicated immediately. And when we go to him and say, Lord, I'm tired of living for myself. I'm tired of letting sin boss me around. He says, I will forgive you and I will erase it and I will fill you with abundant life. But you have to let go of it forever. Let me ask you a very pointed question this morning before we look at the last truth. Do you have life?
do you have life? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? And has he changed you? When you look deep down into your soul and you know your heart, you know your mind, you know your attitude, you know your actions, are you fully reconciled to God? Has he, because of Christ, declared you holy and blameless? And does your life bear proof that that is true? Do you know, I mean know, I mean unshakable, I know, that I am forgiven. Do you know that you are his? And if you have never trusted Jesus, if you've never turned from your sin and asked him to forgive you and transfer you from death to life, I pray right now where you sit, you will do that. What better day to start a new life than on the day that Jesus rose from the grave? What better day? Please, I beg you, don't be proud. Don't be stubborn. Don't convince yourself that it's not really a problem, that sin's not really an issue, that you don't need Jesus. You'll be fine. You and I are both sinners, but Jesus will save you by his grace. He died for you. He took your sin to the cross, and he rose to free you. And you can make that decision right now, and trust him right now where you sit, and you can confess your sin and renounce it and ask him to forgive you and make, you, uh, make him your savior. And I want to tell you right now, that eternal transaction will take place right in this room. If you've done that, or if you want to know more about it and have somebody talk to you and explain it, we will be up here after the service. I'll be up here. Leadership will be up here. Prayer band members will be up here. Listen, the, the ham will wait, okay? The, the, the Easter cake will wait. Do you have Easter cakes? I don't know. But it'll wait. Brunch will wait. They need your table anyway. It'll wait. This is more important than food. So don't leave. Don't say, well, I got to, you know, you preach kind of late. I got to go. No, you don't. This is eternity we're talking about. So don't leave today without being sure. And if you do know him and you have trusted him, let me be blunt. For some of us, it's time to quit messing around. It's time to quit messing around and get serious about the Lord. You know when you look at your life, there's little life, there's little growth. There's little fruit. That's not why Jesus died and rose again, to produce that in you. He says, lay aside all works of darkness and walk as children of life. Listen, we have abundant life. Let's start living it. Enough messing around. And if that's personal, I'm sorry. The gospel is personal. Jesus solved problems one through four. But let me tell you quickly, he solved problem five. Sin prevented any way of escape or hope of salvation until the Savior comes to forgive and redeem us forever. Look back at verse 14 and we'll pray. Paul says in verse 14, we have received, not earned, we have received redemption. 
the forgiveness of sins. What do those two words mean? Let me explain it real quick. The word redemption means to pay a ransom to set someone free. Hear that. Don't don't get distracted. Don't start closing your Bible. Redemption means to pay a ransom to set somebody free, which is what he did through the cross by sacrificing his life and shedding his blood. The blood was the payment of the ransom to free us from sin. So now he paid the ransom. Now what happens? Look at the second word. He has given us now forgiveness. That means to be pardoned and released from the penalty. Here's the second part. Making it appear that the offense was never committed. Oh, praise the Lord for that. He doesn't just say, it's okay, it's all right, I'll just look the other way. He says, nope, I'm removing all record, so it's like you never even sinned. And I'm going to forgive you of that. This is the completion of the work that Christ did. Four things. He rescued us from sin and darkness. He reconciled us to himself, even though we used to be his enemies. He restored us spiritually to be holy and blameless. And then he redeems us and forgives us forever. It's all because of the work of Jesus Christ. And it is by faith in him that we are saved. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus does one more thing. In Revelation 12, it says the believers overcome the enemy by the blood of the Lamb. So we're saved, forgiven, freed, and made holy. And then he says, I will continue to work my power in you so you overcome sin and the enemy and so you can continue to have abundant life through me. All of that happens for one reason, because Jesus Christ is alive. There is no other way. We sang it Friday night in that beautiful new song that I love. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life again. You have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. Let's praise the Lord out loud right now for that. Thank you, Lord, for doing that. Jesus is the one who did that. And he will change your life forever if you will yield to him. Let's say it one more time. The Lord is risen. And because he's alive, everything changes. Let's close our eyes.